Hi, welcome to this episode of the VFX Shop. I'm Mike Seymour and we're going to that mythical place somewhere apparently just between Gotham and Metropolis where I am joined by the two Matts who hopefully won't be warring. Matt Leonard, how are you, sir? Very well, thank you. So you're in Canada at the moment, Matt? Yeah, I am in sunny Vancouver at the moment. Excellent. And is it actually sunny? It actually has been sunny today, which is great. And uh, also joined by our sort of season regular, Matt Wallen. How are you, Matt? I am very good. And whereabouts are you calling from? Home or work or where are you? I'm at home. I'm uh, here. It's 9.30 at night in Richmond, Virginia. And uh, it's been oddly and unseasonably cold today, but sunny. Right. Well, I'm coming from Sydney where it was just really hot. In fact, it was like 33 degrees centigrade. And today it's plummeted to about 20 um, but yes, uh, and so obviously we want to talk about uh, Batman versus Superman. And if anyone knows uh, the show, they'll know this probably could be framed as Matt versus Mike. Uh, Matt Leonard, you're going to have to kind of act as Wonder Woman because uh, <laughs> for a long time, Matt and I have had a bit of a disagreement over the old Dark Knight and uh, and the Marvel Universe. So I'm going to get right into it uh, with a review of the film before we look at the visual effects by asking you, Matt, uh, did you hate it as much as I anticipated that you would have? So I would say this. I would say uh, I'm not... I, I came out of the movie and I thought that, well, that was pretty bad, <laughs> but it's not as bad as uh, like a Peter Jackson movie would have been. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, okay. Good to know. I wasn't. I was. I wasn't. I wasn't a fan. Like I, I was. I went to see it thinking, like, well, everybody's saying it's really. All the reviews are saying it's really terrible. All the people I've talked to said it's really bad. I'm going to go. I'm going to try to go with an open mind and experience it for myself. And I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. And I, it, it was like every Zack Snyder movie I've ever seen. It was like it a great uh, a guy who makes a great trailer and I don't think delivers a very good movie. Um, okay, I'll loop back on the movie 300 in, in, the, in the shadow of that comment. But um, Matt Leonard, what do you think? Well, I wasn't really sure what I was going to expect from it. I did like, um, I do like uh, Batman and obviously do like Superman. And so I was hoping that it was going to be good. But again, I had read many, many bad reviews and just thought, oh, no, this could be disastrous so I actually came out of the movie happier than I expected I did I actually enjoyed it and I think that evening on on Twitter I gave it I think a seven out of ten which probably I shouldn't have done but I did and uh, I definitely enjoyed the ride there was plenty of things in it that I didn't like Um, I didn't like how some of the characters were portrayed they seemed to kind of be going against uh, what I thought they should be as characters but I think overall it wasn't as bad as uh as other things I had seen. So um, it was better than Fantastic Four, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> better than Green Lantern. Well, everything's yeah. better than Green Lantern. Um, okay, so yeah, yeah. here's the thing. I would normally be arguing uh, pro, um, you know, Batman because I just like The Dark Knight so much, except for I actually really don't particularly like the direction of Zack Snyder. Um, I think that 300 was a very stylized film that worked really, really well in this kind of very stylized context that it was in as like a sort of an exploration of doing things in a very, very different fashion. But other than that film, yeah, I'm really not a fan of his work. And um, and I don't think anything's ever really shifted me from that, uh, that position. So I was not looking forward to the film in the first place. Um, you know, I did love The Dark Knight tremendously. Um, and then I had some real problems with this film, not least of which is, uh, you know, I'd seen some other Marvel films relatively recently and they were kind of funny and uh, sort of Deadpoolish. And I thought, well, that's like really enjoyable cinema and this is just a bit depressing. Um, and, and I guess it was a bit depressing, not just because the, the subject matter sort of failed to be uplifting, but it was just really a bit depressing because of the sense of a, a lost opportunity to, uh, to bring together what I would have thought would have been a, you know, a cracker of a, a team. Now, this is a pretty spooked project in, in the sense that lots of people have tried to getting up this kind of start of the Justice League thing, including um, George Millam, who uh, was all but ready to go with Justice League uh, a number of years ago, but then it kind of uh, fell over. So... So going back to you, Matt, like, 
I, I guess you're going to agree with me on this, but it felt to me like it, it first and foremost really suffered from a lack of humour um, and secondly really suffered from us being able to kind of root for somebody um, in a kind of a heroic sense, which is kind of what you want from a superhero movie. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say so. Like, And I think, you know, one of the things I know that it connects directly to, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, some of the Frank Miller Batman retelling of stories and the sort of older kind of alcoholic Batman fighting it out with Superman. I think that's correct if I know my mm-hmm. my comic book lore correctly. So, I mean, I, I kind of understand the story, where they're coming from, what they're trying to do. But I, I, I actually think compared to the the Dark Knight trilogy, like this, it doesn't even, it doesn't even come close in terms of successfully creating a world in which these characters seem believable uh, and exist and exist in a believable fashion. And I think that something about the the execution of this story, yeah, with with no humor, in such a desaturated uh, kind of um, uh, grade, they remove almost all the color from it, which is one of the things that, and I, you know, I could see that being a stylistic choice, but I do think when you're making a comic book film, if you go back and look at, you know, comics and you look at classic mm-hmm. comics, even contemporary comics, like color and a color palette and a, a, you know, an understanding of the relationship of color and how that kind of can dictate movement through the frame in panels in a comic or, um, uh, it can tell us a lot about a character. Can I just uh, jump in about that uh, point about humour? I definitely noticed a complete lack of it uh, during the movie. In fact, I think uh, I think the only time anyone <laughs> laughed was the uh, Wonder Woman scene where they said, is she with you? I think that was the only time I remember anyone in the cinema laughing whatsoever. I, I walked out and I just was struck by the words preposterous and um, pompous. It was just like, you know, kind of, I understand they want to take this stuff seriously, but I, I actually passed the threshold where I felt comfortable trying to take guys in spandex suits kind of seriously. They were just so like pretentious and the plot was so preposterous. I mean, I've always had a problem with Batman versus Superman and kind of like when I was a kid, I was like, Superman, just kill him. Game over. Because <laughs> um, one of them's a superhero that has super powers and the other guy's just a really good gadget guy and it just never seemed to me to be an even match. I, I totally like the universe of Batman and I totally like the universe of Superman. I just always found it hard to connect the two up. And um, yeah, and so then when you just don't have any humour about it, like there's no, then you sort of meant to buy into this as just being like really serious drama and like it's just not Shakespeare. And, and not only that, but like one of the things about the Dark Knight type of stuff is that there was this extra dimension laid on the characters. But like, did we feel we had that? Like they were, these guys were just miserable, but they weren't like really deep and brooding and, you know, conflicted and just just where they were just miserable. Yeah, I never really felt like they'd spent a whole lot of time developing either character. And it, it does feel too a little bit like... I, 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 the first thing I was thinking when the movie began, I, they start showing the, um, the sort of origin story once again for Bruce Wayne and I kept... Or for Batman. And I just was thinking, we're going to have to watch this again, like watch his parents get shot again and yet another telling of the same narrative and I feel like I've seen that so many times now compare that compare that with the trailer for Batman the Lego movie where he's like (laughs) Alfred's like I've seen this before in 93 in 98 2001 2004 and back in the 1960s and it's just like so funny and it's so good and I mean I just so wanted to see that film more than I wanted to see this one um and I think there's so many opportunities, though, yeah. for great humor between these two characters and within this universe. But I just feel like that's they they're choosing to do something different. And I think I you know I applaud the effort to do something different, but I just don't think it works. See, I think you can do something different if you're Christopher Nolan and are just a gifted filmmaker. But if you're not Christopher Nolan, if you're like sack and you're not quite as like heavy on the because he hasn't done films that have insanely complex narrative acting 
things, mm-hmm. right? And so as a consequence, you're kind of surviving on the big effects. And once you find the big effects, you really need to have a bit of sense of humor. Otherwise, you know, you're asking us all to just take this world a little too seriously and it's all a little too preposterous. Um, well, I think yeah, like James Gunn, you know, for Guardians of the Galaxy, like he doesn't have like an impressive track record prior to that movie. I mean, he's done, I, I can't remember some of the other films funny he's film, made. Though. But, I mean, it was really had humor. Yeah, and, but yeah, Guardians, like uh, is pitch perfect tonally. Like, yeah. I mean, he really stepped up to the plate and did something that, you know, whether you like that movie or not, I think it was a, you know, a, a relatively fresh take on that genre. Like I think you had said too, Mike, in, in an earlier show about that, film, you had said that you were kind of going into it thinking, eh, you know, I don't know, like what's this thing with a squirrel and a tree yeah. and like, who are these characters? And, but then, you know, you, you see it and it's like, well, you know, it's, it's kind of a fresh take on, on that universe. It's fun. It's a fun romp, you know, in the theater and it works. I did enjoy the original Michael Keaton Batman when it came out because it had a really good villain. I think Prince did the soundtrack. It was like sort of new and we hadn't had Batman for a while. But, you know, we're now literally like on like the, you know, this week's Batman film. And so if you're going to do something different, you really need to kind of step it up and do something different. I mean, I, I applaud it now from a technical point of view. There are lots of really interesting technical things about it. It's the fact they shot a lot of it, 35mm anamorphic and did some 15 perf IMAX stuff and 5 perf 65 and um, and the fact that they were shooting it like a you know 500T Vision 3 stock the whole way through. Like, I mean, I'm totally there. That's great. Um, and then there are some really nice visual effects. But if you look at it from a like an audience point of view, before we get into that technical for a second, like even when the um, the reanimated bad guy smashes out of the old uh, spaceship, I mean, honestly, my kids in the trailer were like, is that an orc? Can they allow to reuse assets <laughs> from, you know? It was like, it was just like, it was just, and the thing about it, and, and I'm going to use that character as a, as a critique for a second. The thing about it is if you were given that storyboard frame with that, design of a character then you've rendered it and it looks good the problem is i have no um no ability to go along with the story on that one character so i'm not obviously doing this in a movie i'm not analyzing this much in the movie but later when i thought why did i hate that character so much it's this you you're basically re you're, you're building a new character which is fully formed, has no problem with gravity, no problem with getting itself accustomed to the environment that it's in. It's for no apparent reason got sort of horns out of its back and just ridiculous. And and here's the thing, like if you say, oh, this is a thing we found on another planet and it grew like that because of the terrain of that planet and blah, blah, blah. Like I once had a character designer, Matt, and I'm sure you've done the same thing, mm-hmm. talk about designing characters. And they were like, okay, is it a biped? Is it a quadruped? Is it a uh, carnivore? Is it a... Like they just had all of this logic that went into the bone structure, the weight distribution, the design issues that got you this character. You didn't have to know all that backstory, but all of that backstory informed the design of the character where this one was informed by some DNA from a human with a guy that looks like a human from from another planet that has different gravity and a database of like, you know, Zootopia. And then you, you come up with this guy and it's like, I don't get why you get that guy. Yeah, critic, I don't even get why a, you want that guy. A critic here in the US, I think a Chicago film critic made some joke in another podcast I was listening to where he said that it looked like the character from, there's a, I don't know if you guys see this where you live, but there's a commercial here in the United States for a medication that you take when you have the flu called Mucinex. And it, there's a, an animated character of this like snot monster that is the thing that Mucinex is supposed to reduce your phlegm when you have a cold. And somebody made the joke that it, that Superman and Batman wind up battling uh, the Mucinex monster. You know, this totally uninspired, like regurgitated design from so many other films and even these kind of goofy commercial universes and stuff. So yeah, I think that, that was inherently problematic at a design level, but then also just at a plot point level too. It's like they have to have something that will bring these two characters together and, you know, Wonder Woman kind of comes in to do a little bit of that, but then it's this kind of, uh, this hybridized character brought to life by the dead DNA of, uh, I guess, uh, Michael Shannon, right? And and I just say like, but it, it, there's no informed logic to it because 
we, you know, like you don't sort of go, oh, okay, I could sort of see that would be like why that would character would be. Like there's just no reason why you suddenly come up with a giant orc that's evil looking at, you know, spiky teeth and like, and here's my thing, like you don't, you don't need to, to spell everything out to the audience, but at some level your radar just goes off as to, you know, disbelief, displot disbelief, a history disbelief, a back character disbelief, I don't know what you want to call it, but it just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like it, it just feels inserted into the, the, the story. And I, I really felt there was this film just suffered from that all the way through. We're just going to insert the fact that Gotham and, and Metropolis are right next to each other because that's just convenient. We're just going to insert the fact right. that everybody's <laughs> left the city and no one's going to get killed in this one because we got criticised for the first one. So we're going to make a plot point of just saying, uh, actually, everyone's out of town at the moment in this area that we're going to now well, well, and and the and the part that like when we did our first review on. Uh, what was it, Man of Steel, right? I think one of the things that, if I recall, one of the things we talked about on that show, which of course everybody sort of discussed, was the intense and highly uh, pulverizing destruction of the city that takes place during that battle. And it almost feels like, you know, the the whole narrative component, the conceit at the opening of the story, the reason why Batman hates Superman is because it, it's almost like it, it, this movie functions as an apology for the things that people and yet, took that's issue the only with thing in the that first I liked. movie. That, that honestly was the only thing that I liked. I really liked the retelling of that story with someone on the ground mm-hmm. and, and there being consequences to destroying uh, the city and that the consequence was that Batman thinks that you're, you're done. I mean, I, I actually like that. Um, but after that, I went, I don't know. Matt Leonard, what do you think? Well, the the Man of Steel really is the blemish on my record because I can honestly say other than that movie, I don't think I've ever been bored at a visual effects sequence ever. And I distinctly remember to this day watching that end sequence of the destruction in Man of Steel and actually feeling the emotion of complete boredom after what seemed like tens and tens of minutes of just destruction going by. And... I mean, watching it then and rewatching the, the the retelling of it with uh, with the Ben Affleck character, obviously watching and that again, I, I enjoyed it. It was nice to kind of re re see it in that more condensed manner. But it did kind of leave me wondering: Aren't these two guys, both Batman and Superman, meant to be good guys? Why are they yes creating so much havoc and killing so many innocent people that they're meant to be protecting? And that just seemed. I mean, I'm not a big comic person, but everyone knows Batman and Superman are meant to be good and they're meant to protect mankind and yet and they're just even running if, around. Even if they've fallen or whatever, like it's a hero film, right? They need to yeah, be exactly. heroic. They need to yeah. not just get together because their mums had the same name, insert plot point here. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just, yeah. oh my God. Um, so, okay, so, and there are some other huge problems I have with the film in terms of um, of structure and just, yeah insanely convenient, preposterous and pompous behaviour. But the humour, you know, would have like given me a lot. But but just one last thing before we move on to visual effects and, and it's why this film, you know, like it's just again one of those sharp relief examples. I was gonna, trying to think of a character example and I just realised that you shouldn't even, I mean one could obviously talk about the, those characters, but you just only have to look at, um, at Wayne Manor and Alfred like when you had Michael Caine playing Alfred, it was just spectacular. You know what I mean? Like there was emotion there, there was story there, there was, you know, I'm not going to, you know, bury another... I'm not going to bury um, another Batman. <laughs> I've buried yeah, exactly. 14 like, Batmans. And, <laughs> yeah, putting the little ears in the coffin. I'm not doing it, Master. I'm not doing it. But anyway, the thing is, it was just so good and he was so good and it just gave so much... And this one, you've just basically got you know, a, another good actor, that, but this time just completely wasted. It's like yeah. occasionally talks to, to Batman in a room where he apparently is a soldering iron expert. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm like, what? There's none of that kind of... Yeah. Uh, well, I, I couldn't know. work out. I knew it was Alfred, but I was like, is he also trying to play the, the, um, the other character, the Morgan Freeman character? Because he seemed to be kind of like, as you said, hanging around dealing with tech yeah that's as well a good as, point he did kind of fulfill both roles in that capacity 
for it's sure. So it's like if you're that bright that you can build that crap. I mean, honestly, <laughs> would man, you really you, be you a, get another a job? Butler, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and when did you have time while being a butler to learn, you know, modern electronics and stuff? Have you, have you been sidelining? Have you got a couple of degrees at summer school or at night college? I mean, seriously, like, what? <laughs> anyway, but the point is the character, it's poorly formed, it's poorly used in the, in the construction and it just had, and then when you just have this classic example of Michael Caine, just a magnificent piece of acting, just you wanted to like just give him as many Oscars as you could possibly do. And I didn't feel anything for that for the uh, Alfred character. And Alfred's always been just such a great, dry wit kind of counterpoint. Well, and I, I think there's a lot of pressure too. Like when, and I I, I question the the decision making at the studio level to remake a character so soon after such a successful trilogy was made. Now it did say in the credits for this movie that Christopher Nolan is an executive producer on this project. But I, I can't help but look at it and just think like, well, why are we, we're recasting the character, we're kind of rewriting some of the rules for the character and telling the story again just a few short years after the last Batman movie. Yeah. Now, I thought there was some promise going in because he's the old, like almost every time you've recast Batman, in fact, every other time you've recast Batman, you've cast it with a younger actor, right? Sometimes like, you know, years younger, like from Val mm-hmm. Kilner to... Clooney, every time you, you did a generation, they just went younger so you could revamp it, right? They're obviously doing the same thing with Spider-Man. But here you actually cast an actor that's older than Christian Bale. So I thought, oh, okay, so we're just so not going to go the origin, we're going to go the other way, right? Like a man at the end of his like, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I felt like there was stuff there and then there was that whole thing with um, Robin's costume. Like, okay, I can see it. You're going to go really deep on Lex actually killed Robin and that's going to be layered and you kept us from that from the trial. No, none of that. Every hope I had that it was going to be much cleverer than I thought it was and the third act would just be insanely piecing the jigsaw puzzle together just flopped. Well, and my initial thought after walking out of the theatre was thinking that like, well, could this movie have been better with a few different casting choices? Like I wasn't crazy about Ben Affleck in that role. I thought, I think the guy who plays Superman, he, or what's his name, uh, Henry Cavill, Henry Cavill or whatever. Yeah, he he's fine as Superman. Like uh, you know, he's no uh, what's his name, uh, Christopher Reeve. But he you know he does a, he does all right. And then uh, the Lex Luthor character, though, I kept thinking to myself, this is the worst choice. It's like I kept thinking it's like Mark Zuckerberg as Lex Luthor. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I couldn't <laughs> couldn't escape that. And I yeah. kept thinking it would have been so much more potent to cast in that role a much stronger kind of an older actor. I kept thinking of um, the the guy from, the main guy from uh, Breaking Bad who uh, played the, 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 the main character in that film, like the bald, the bald dude. I can't remember his name off the top of my head right now, but um, somebody like that would have been a, a much more kind of imposing presence as Lex Luthor. And I couldn't help but feel like uh, the, the, the younger actor, uh, Jesse Eisenberg, he just, it didn't work. It, it, it was a, it was a poor casting choice. And then Ben Affleck just always looked, he just looked so sad. He just looked like sad Batman, you know, like this kind of jowly, sad Batman. He seemed so uh, despondent throughout the whole picture. And I just never, I couldn't identify with, I like the idea of an older actor. I think that's kind of cool. The older kind of like the alcoholic kind of aged Batman who's kind of, you know, washed up on some level, I think is a cool way to cast the role. But I think Affleck, didn't he just didn't work in that role for me? I, I, I must admit, if Brian or rather Walter White had suddenly turned out to actually be Lex Luthor and, and uh, discovered a cure for cancer, and uh, that would have been a great sort of <laughs> insightful piece of casting. But um, yeah, no, I totally agree. Lex just didn't work, even though I wanted him to work. He just totally didn't. Okay, so now let's go to visual effects. So like we've we've left our disappointment behind. <laughs> um, what do we think about um, the various sequences in the film? I'm going to start with the uh, sequence where um, the atomic bomb goes, uh, forget the fact that the drop of a hat, they fire a nuke and forget the fact that you're going to ruin, I mean, has no one seen gravity? You're going to ruin every satellite um, and cause a chain reaction that'll take out all of the uh, telecommunications throughout the entire planet. But leave all of that aside for a second. What do we actually think of the visual effects of launching a nuke and... Uh, and uh, Superman being hit in space. Matt, what do you think? I, I liked it visually. I had some um, 
problem with kind of the the physics of what I was seeing. I mean, obviously it's in a weightless environment, but I wasn't sure whether I liked the look of how they had animated the um, the characters in that environment. But I mean, in a kind of a dynamics point of view, the the, the particles, the volumes um, looked great to me. I was I was very happy with that, and obviously the the blast looks nice, and they did that wide shot. Um, obviously from a, a long distance back as when it went off and uh, yeah, I didn't think it looked too bad at all it wasn't it definitely wasn't one of the the uh, shots that I disliked in the in the movie for sure I should say the visual effects primarily by MPC Scanline um, Weta who did the uh, the reanimating of the um, guy from uh, what's his face and um, the monster that therefore jumped out um, and and I think also Dinek uh, did some stuff on it as well um so do you, I guess for me, it was, um, it was oddly a big moment that I didn't feel the visual effects were big enough for. And I didn't feel that. It just felt like the nuke solutions would have demanded a bigger kind of, uh, I'm not saying I have any idea how big a nuclear explosion should be in space, but it just didn't feel big enough. Yeah, I guess it's it. It felt like it, it, effects wise, like I never felt like. I think overall, like I would say, the overall visual effects in the movie, for the most part, were pretty consistent. I think largely they were fairly successful. I liked a lot of the the destruction sims. I thought were really cool and very. Um, it, not that this is cool, but they were very nine eleven. You know, like the stuff we were talking about at the beginning of the film, where yeah, we see things from Bruce Wayne's point of view, yes. and, and I thought that stuff worked great. And the, all the sort of dust particles and the sort of um, the uh, the big sort of dust cloud, you know, or smoke cloud, like in the billowing effects. I think they did it, that stuff was excellent. It was very well done. The the nuclear explosion piece, like plot point wise, like you know say whatever you will about about the script and the plot. I didn't have a problem with the explosion. And I actually kind of liked some of the the residual effects. I thought for a second we were going to have like bizarro Superman because the we saw the uh, Superman character had the like his, it, it had actually damaged him somehow, right? Yeah. And he had, his face was all kind of uh, corroded and distorted and sort of wounded. Mm. And I sort of thought there was something interesting going on there. But then of course the the resolution of that is fairly instantaneous when he's sort of recharged by the the yellow sun or whatever and uh, returns back to earth but i didn't i didn't have any particular problems with that shot per se or sequence of shots yeah i was a bit worried about his face um because it just raised the question to me so like what is the limits of what you can do to kill superman is he unkillable or is he, if you gave him two nuclear weapons, that would have pushed him over the edge and, and he's dead. Um, and then this whole regeneration with the sun thing starts, it's just like the whole sequence for me kind of felt a bit um, uh, like it asked questions and that didn't answer them visually. So I'm not talking about the plot now, but it just was like, oh, what's this thing going on with his face? Um, that look then sort of, posed questions that weren't kind of answered. I didn't dislike it the way I disliked the um, the orc and his, for no apparent reason, um, you know, st- sort of cut off, I don't know what, on his back, sort of stumps of things that were once there. But, yeah, it was, uh, it was an un... I thought like, it could have been bigger, the explosion stuff, and then I felt like it sort of asked visual questions it couldn't answer. Um, well, it makes me think that the movie, in and of itself, like as a as a thing, like it it somehow expects that the viewer has a lot of background knowledge about both of these characters, which maybe isn't. It's not unfair to imagine that anybody going to see Batman versus Superman knows something about Batman and knows something about Superman. But I would argue that the um, the aspect of Superman, like getting power from the yellow sun of the earth as opposed to the red sun of Krypton or something. This is somewhat obscure factoid that without explanation uh, could be lost on uh, the average viewer. <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you this. So so I totally agree with you that I think one of the most successful visual effects sequences was the um, mm-hmm. uh, the amazing 
front sequence with him chasing around on the ground and the, the cars, the physics of the cars, the chase sequence to outchase the destruction was all really, really good. And it had that kind of 9-11 dust cloudy kind of feel that uh, was awesome. What did you think, therefore, about the dream sequence of a apocalyptic future where for no apparent reason Batman wears a, uh, a, uh, a lab coat? Or is it a trench coat? I don't know. I mean, uh, what did I think of the sequence overall? I mean, I, I just yeah, the, the visual effects thing because that was that was mega saturated, uh, desaturated, and incredibly. Um, they had flying creatures and sort yeah, of neo-Nazi like, kind of yeah, and it's like he's in like a desert kind of scenario yeah. or something. Well, it's a, it's a busted up city. It's a, oh, okay. a ruin of a place. Yeah, I guess it was one of those things where I I wasn't clear going in. Going into, I saw the movie a little over a week ago, so it might be there's some slight vagaries probably now at this point in my memory. But that sequence in particular, I do remember thinking, like, well, wait a minute, what's going on here? Because it was so, it felt like a, we were all of a sudden watching another movie, but I don't remember there being an event to trigger my knowledge that this was a dream. It was sort of like we entered the dream mid dream and then were sort of thrown out of it post dream as he's sort of you know, coming back into present day consciousness, if memory serves. But is that, yeah, is that right? No, and we, I mean, I, re, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's just this weird, I mean, it's some apparently incredibly deep reference to a some subplot of a some comic book thing where everyone goes um, all fascist with Superman. But that's that requires such deep knowledge that I've refused to allow them to get off the hook for just suddenly dropping that in without telling anyone. When I think that that, that that Batman with the like the trench coat and the Batman using guns, you know, as part of his sort of way of dealing with the the nefarious characters, be it in his dreams or in real life, like I think that is a very sort of you know Frank Miller sort of graphic novel ish Batman, but it certainly is counter to. Uh, the mo- the Batman we've seen in movies, like you know, a Batman carrying a, you know, a rifle with a scope or shooting a machine gun or something, is certainly a very different kind of experience of that character, and it puts him into a context that is, um, much more of a very clear cut kind of uh, anti-hero in a sense. Yeah, but can we just get back to the visual effects? Yeah, though? Like, what do you think about those flying characters and stuff, and the kind of the environment and the look? I mean, it, I mean, because for me, I, I, I mean, I, I, I'm trying to, <laughs> trying to. Maybe you don't have this. I just hated it. I mean, I was just like, it just, it just does not sell for me. Small guys or even normal sized people with modest sized wings flying, like the aerodynamics of it, the weight distribution, the everything about it just says, are these insect creatures from another planet? I don't know what I'm looking at. This just doesn't look right. Well, yeah, or is it some then, hybridized thing from his his mind about? I mean, yeah, plot wise, it doesn't make any sense. But and then f- the physics of it doesn't doesn't just really didn't function. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I had um I had actually skipped out for a few seconds just before that um, clip came on. That section came on, and when they came back, <laughs> lucky I, you. I, your I ice actually, cream and your coke. Yeah, and exactly. You're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> I actually thought I'd gone into the wrong theatre for a moment, <laughs> and as, as I settled myself down and, and I was watching, I was thinking someone's just put on spawn or something i just couldn't quite figure out what was going on and and it would just as as we've said it, it looks so different to to everything else the palette was different the grading was was different and it was just like what what is what am i seeing here and and when it had finished i was thinking i wonder whether that was important and yet they never it never felt like they came back to it that it could have been cut from the movie and no one really would have cared or known any different I mean, from an editorial point of view, isn't that exactly what they're referring to when they say you need an editor to kill your darlings? Mm. In that you've got this sequence, it doesn't propel the plot forward. It's a super wonderful thing that you're in love with, but it's completely wrong for this film. And you just need an editor to step forward and say, look, I I understand where you're going with this. I think it's really cool. It'll be awesome as a DVD extra, but I'm sorry. Like, it's just doesn't, it doesn't, we, we don't want to be there. We don't want to be in his head for another dream sequence and this one makes no friggin' sense and provides the audience with no insight, information or otherwise that's going to propel the story forward. I mean, we've seen stuff like that before. I mean, it must was it one of the Harry Potter movies where they frame-stored did that amazing 
uh, kind of storytelling section that was again. Yeah, but that was a huge amount of exposition uh, that was just exactly, and it looked it worked fantastic, and it looked brilliant. And it, it was it felt like to me if they're going to go down that route of showing something so obscure, then make it something special. And it felt By like the way, as you said, just they lost it. Just as an aside, just as a total rat hole, I saw the coolest thing on the internet the other day. You guys probably crossed this years ago, but just for people listening to this podcast, if you haven't come across the Harry Potter uh, gallo, uh, um, theory of the four brothers or the three brothers and death um, over the, the film. Hmm. So Deathly Hallows in the film, totally cool. There's another fan theory on top of it, which is that Voldemort is the first brother because he wants to become the the all-powerful wizard. The second one is, in fact, um, pining after his lost love. So that's Skype. <laughs> Escape. Skype, what am I trying to say? <laughs> and the third one, of course, is the one that runs from death, doesn't try and get anything, uses the invisibility cloak, which is Harry, which just leaves one character left, which is death. And uh, do you want to know who death is? Mm-hmm. The headmaster. Ah. Because at one point he has all three hallows and he um, is the one that basically meets Harry once Harry's dead, which is to say, how does he do that? <laughs> yeah. He is death. Anyway, so it's just the most awesome fan fiction-y kind of theory thing ever uh, if you're into that kind of stuff, which I'm normally not, but that one just totally knocked my socks off. Um, so, okay, so uh, I didn't like that sequence. I just thought the physics was wrong. I thought that the this super stylized look was just like another film and I understand that if you just did that as a completely separate thing, that would be cool. Um, and if it was like looking at a uber cool Aquaman that's setting up for another film, again, I'm there. But unless that f- has some plot reason for happening, I just thought that it was uh, was wrong and it was oddly wrong um, in a way that kind of kept me out of the film. And, and I would also say that the end sequence had the same issues for me with this um, ridiculous uh, reborn kind of fight sequence. But not only the orc itself, but Batman's I'm going to spring from building to building, um, place to place... Because I just don't, at some point, you know, unless you're superhuman, if you get thrown around by a character like Superman, the compression of your skull mm-hmm. and your brain inside your skull is going to lead to, to concussion. Like, I mean, I'm, like, I don't care what you're wearing on the outside in terms of body armour. If somebody hits you hard enough to throw you 18 feet across the room and you hit a concrete wall, you know, your brain is going to be scrambled. Maybe that's, and, maybe that's why he looks so sad. and so when so there was a particular it was in the trailer where Batman goes at a building and then I think something either throws punches or whatever at the building he's like literally on the corner of a building up in the air and he shoots out and then flies out camera left uh, to the next place so he's like literally doing what Hulk did in the first Avengers film which is just jumping from building to building but he's doing it by Spider-Man type you know shooting out sort of ropes from his wrist which that utility belt man never runs out of tricks but anyway it just it just again it it's a problem that when you just get it to this point where you're just so far away from the real world at some point i just give up on it i just don't feel like i've got i can't i can't stay vested in the i can't suspend disbelief well and just oh sorry matt go ahead no i was just gonna say i think he was in his kind of thousand kilogram steel suit at that time as well wasn't he so he kind of armored up for the for the big fight and and i mean on top of the fact that the the weight of that suit didn't seem to fit the the way that he'd walk yeah. let alone fly around like spider-man as you were saying so yeah it, it it just seemed it seemed odd it seemed odd and even at the point i mean when spider when um superman first arrives he says to batman doesn't he that that he could have killed him already if he'd wanted to so you just think really there is no match as far as I could, so as far as I could see, as an audience member, between Batman and Superman fighting, the only realistic good. sequence between the two of them, and I do think it was very well executed, is Batman's chasing in the Batmobile, and Superman just stands there, and the Batmobile just hits him. Yeah, yeah. And of mm. course, Superman doesn't move an inch, and the the Batmobile's almost a write-off. Now that was really good, right? Mm-hmm. That was plausible. It was a little bit funny, and it made you go, "Oh yeah, of course, that's what would happen," right? 
Superman wouldn't move an inch, you know. Well, and sort of the, the emasculation nothing. too of the Batmobile in that in that moment too, where it's like it hits him and it kind of skitters off, like you know, like some uh, you know cheap little uh, you know import or something. It like it and it completely breaks down, and then he he rips the Superman rips the lid off the thing, and Batman stands up. <laughs> you know, in this kind of like cascade of steam coming out of his vehicle. And it's sort of like, it, there's just something about it that uh, a couple of my students at, at VCU were saying, you know, that they thought the whole, the whole story really was just that Batman and Superman really, they're, they're just in love. <laughs> um, okay. okay. So that gets us to, that gets us to Wonder Woman. And my kids thought that this whole film was basically the best trailer for a Wonder Woman film they've seen. My son said the Batman same thing. As long as Batman and Superman don't turn up, they're really keen to see the Wonder Woman film. As long as she's the only one in it, they're there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I still have like a bit of a problem with her sort of, I mean, you know, I don't know, I'm sounding like I'm being really petty, but like <laughs> suddenly from nowhere a magic uh, lanyard appears and suddenly from nowhere it's, doing things that it never did in the comic books, right? Like holding down orcs. And I'm pretty sure the orc didn't suddenly confess, okay, I'm here to kill you guys. I can't not tell a lie because I'm inside the magic lasso. Um, <laughs> and so I was like, what? Where'd that come from? And how's she using that? And what the heck? And is she got the same powers that Superman has? Or she can like not be... And then she's immortal because she's been around since 1920. And I get that there's all of this stuff off in her erotic island of Lesbos and that she can, you know, do things over time and <laughs> she left the human whatever. But nevertheless, like when she's in the city and she's fighting, shouldn't she just have some limitations, some kind of framework? Um, I mean, I get that, you know, the old Wonder Woman was good with deflecting bullets and... Uh, with the her with wristbands, the, what was it? wristbands? But this one seemed to be just pretty much supernatural, didn't she? Yeah, her her, her sort of sonic shock wavy dome of coolness that stops the orc. I mean, was, I think you know when she arrives on screen in the third act of the movie as Wonder Woman, although we've seen her sort of in her incognito uh, persona yeah. previously. Um, you know the. <laughs> the audience at the uh, $6 Tuesday movie that I saw this in, you know, they there was a, a semi-audible like kind of uh, cheer when she appeared on screen. Uh, I think just because people were so relieved that like, you know, someone was here to sort of abate the, uh, the dark uh, ensuing battle that was ongoing. But yeah, I mean, her, her powers did seem, which I don't really recall from the character, but to rival those of, of Superman, she seemed like fairly... Um, uh, it, like she was never really in any peril, right? I don't know that she no. was ever in any danger. And it seemed like she might have been able to take care of this whole situation on her own uh, <laughs> if these two other uh, clowns weren't fighting before she arrived. And while I'm not a comic book fan, seriously, she has to fly coach. What happened to the invisible plane? <laughs> yeah. And, where, and where is there that? any problem getting her sword and stuff on through security to a domestic flight? Like, and they really have a domestic flight to her secret island? I mean, I'm sorry. I was like, what? Um, yeah, okay. So I thought her sequences were a bit like over the top in terms of the visual effects. Like it was just so um, ambiguous as to what her limits were that it made it kind of hard to, to judge. I, I think the particle effects stuff, um, the actual, you know, wall of, uh, of sort of sonic whatever was nicely rendered, but it was hard to take in. Um, well, and if, I didn't feel if, though. I was going to say too, effects-wise, in that final battle, as well as earlier in the film too, at, in the opening sequence, one of the things that they did do in terms of the the design of the effect sequences, and I thought they were they were well executed, was they did play, and they did this a little bit of Man of Steel too, but they did it more in this film where they played a lot on scale, where we had the opportunity to visualize and see these. Uh, kind of super beings in the case of Superman at the beginning or in the case of Wonder Woman and Superman at the end um, and Batman. But we were able to see them kind of engaging in this battle, sometimes very close up in chaotic moments that were sort of hard to tell what was going on. But occasionally they would pull the camera way back and we would see the scale of the destruction was immense, 
but the people or the superheroes were so small in context to the destruction ensuing. And I thought that just visually that was, that was effective and it felt like a fresh visual effect uh, that was something that they did over and over again throughout the movie. And I kind of thought that was neat. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I sort of say that. I just, I, I felt it was all a bit dark for me. Mm. Like it was, it was dark in a way that made it feel like it clearly wasn't, but it was like it was on a digital soundstage. That's probably the best way to describe it to me. The visual effects felt like I was in an artificial space that was a digital soundstage in the same way that when we used to watch things, it looked like it was on a soundstage, you know, like the forest or the lagoon or whatever it was. You're like, well, that's so obviously in a soundstage versus when you shot it on location and it's Lawrence of Arabia and you go, well, okay, they obviously really are there. I mean, I, there are when Superman meets his now ghost-like Kevin Costner father, I mean, I felt that looked realistic. I thought that was on location, but the dark stuff... Um, I felt Batman running through the city felt like a real city, but the dark stuff at the end, did not that feel like just a bit artificial as an environment here? I, I mean, I'd almost say hadn't been rendered with energy conservation, looked quite setty. Yeah, I know what you mean. I'm actually looking at a, a still right now of, um, of kind of Wonder Woman launching away from camera towards a big explosion. Um, just one of the shots from the trailer and... The way it's been, the way it's been graded, definitely leaves a lot of black outside of uh, of the fire and the kind of the foreground elements. So whether there was something there originally, some buildings, some uh, some other destruction that has just been graded right to to black, I don't know. Um, I know when when uh, when Batman first arrives in the in the bat plane and and he kind of jumps into the building and I think it's still all that end sequence. That all felt a little bit more um, kind of wide. There was obviously the shot down by the river or, or the by the coast, wherever that was. Um, but yeah, definitely once it got towards the end, maybe just the grading made it made it hard to see what was going on there. That's a really interesting point, isn't it? Like you you could have a um, character development, like a look development, sorry, look dev, and. Uh, lighting environment look dev and it all work really really well and then you get this kind of stylized grading stuck on top of it and it's it's that that i'm rejecting not the visual effects work and i'm i'm calling it the visual effects work but it's actually just matt do you think it's possible that that, that looked a whole lot better before someone went into the grading suite sure and i mean i've <laughs> yeah i mean i've i've seen that happen before on projects where you know there's a certain look that sought um you know in the visual effects house with the visual effects team and the sequence supervisor or the, or the visual effects supervisor. And that is delivered, uh, to, uh, the studio and the director. And then the grade completely changes the aesthetic. And oftentimes it can, um, it doesn't have any impact on the visual effects, but I've even seen it maybe not so much so recently, but in maybe the, the somewhat more distant past, uh, I've seen a grade actually, um, be detrimental to the execution of the visual effects and, and the something that looked great, you know, in the screening room at the, at the VFX facility doesn't look so hot in the theater because the grade is so extreme and they're crushing something or, or losing some significant data that was there. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what this looks like when, it, when, if we ever decide to rewatch it on, on Blu-ray or DVD, because I remember going to see one of my favorite films a long time ago, The Prestige. Mm -hmm. And at the very end of that film, there's a very uh, kind of pivotal moment where where the camera is moving down an alley and on the side of the alley are these boxes that contain things. And I remember in the cinema just not being able to see into the darkness as to what was in those boxes. And then like six months later or a year later when I, when I re-saw it at home, the grading was so different that you could clearly see there were bodies in those boxes mm. and that one piece of information changed at least for that movie the whole <laughs> perception of how you how you understood what the film was about and so i'm just wondering whether the grade of this will be different on a, on a home release as opposed to what we saw in the theater yeah i mean we, we i could be just being overly critical of this film it did after all clear 700 million this week mm -hmm. in terms of box office but I will say that it plummeted in North America 60, 70%, I think, between its opening weekend and 
like 166 million down to about 51. Um, so, you know, I don't think I'm, I'm alone. No, I mean, I think, I think it did. It just did not have a very positive word of mouth from those who were excited to see it and did go see it. I think it was met with, you know, a few people who really loved it and were excited about it. But the majority of people who were like, eh, you know, like <laughs> there wasn't like this resounding, like, it's great. You've got to go see it. You know, I don't, I just think that was the marketing, you know, was pretty intense before the film came out. But I think subsequently after people have gone to the theater, it just doesn't have that, those kind of legs. Yeah. Patrick Tolopoulos was the production designer. He's the guy that did the Godzilla that wasn't the last one. It was the one in New York with the, the lizard look. And he's also done stuff like Underworld. So I'm thinking that that's part of it from the production design. And then the other thing is, Larry Fong was the DOP. Now, he did 300, which, as I said, I liked, but it was very much a kind of stylized sort of film. It was, you know, he's Sucker Punch, Watchmen, a lot of that stuff that... Uh, and I, I don't know, I just found that... I think he did some, some, some clever things, like there was quite a lot of use of... or some extensive use of uh, backlit tranny type stuff outside windows rather than making everything a green screen shot. Mm -hmm. That being said, they still had some mega green screen stages um, and stuff to uh, to do. I think there was the largest one was uh, 38 foot by 650 circular green screen for the doomsday battle sequence. Um, and if you're going to do a, you know, big set like that, I mean, you can, but um, yeah, I think his stylized... Um, cinematography and the stylized production design, which is very kind of uh, fancy. I don't know how to describe it. Like it's a, it's a not, it's a, a stylized, very graphic production design. Mm -hmm. um, I think both of those things were were heavily influencing what I didn't like about what the visual effects crew inherited. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because I mean, they had to work inside that that kind of setup of the other two um, leads. Yeah, kind of a baroque and like maybe overly, if I if I'm following you correctly, like almost like an overly distressed uh, yeah. urban decay environment. Yeah, where it's like it's they've they've gone in a little too heavily with the uh, the distressing sponge on all the uh, <laughs> environments. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I think Company 3 did the grade and I think I read that it was done um, at 4K, which is, you know, really interesting and stuff. But, mm. um, yeah, I mean, once you've set that up with the production design and the look that the DOP is going for, if the VF trick teams is doing their job, they're falling in sync with that and then, you 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 know, you're going crazy for it. Uh, in um, At Company 3 kind of getting it looking even more graphical and more whatever. And it is hard, right, because comic books are... Uh, very graphical and obviously extremely um, sort of posed for the nature of the frames. But I do think that there's a there's a real risk of believing that what works in one medium should be translated to another holus bolus. Like I think um, there are graphical movies like 300 that kind of work, but there is also a case where it's like, well, that works because it's a comic book, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's a still frame, because you don't have a fixed aspect ratio, you know, the cell boxes as it were change from full pages to a half a page to you know 12 to a page one whatever it is um and when you're in a cinema i've got a different language and I, I think sometimes maybe this film is one of them it's just it's relied too heavily on thinking that if we only did what made the graphic novel great we'd make a great film and i think um i think it was ron howard who said like films are so much more fragile than that you know like you're just willing to forgive a lot of things in other mediums that when you have something that's bad in a film, you kind of write the whole thing off as the worst crap you've ever seen. Well, but you think, you know, just stylistically, there's so many varying approaches to how to create a comic book movie. You mentioned 300. You know, I think we could, the other kind of extreme example that I that comes to mind is the uh, uh, Dick Tracy the, in the mm. late 80s, I think, uh, the Warren yeah. Beatty, Madonna, <laughs> Dick Tracy movie, which was all about like really heavily saturated colors and keeping things, um, uh, you know, really uh, complementary or sort of triad colors, you know, to kind of create that very sort of Sunday morning, you know, funny papers kind of aesthetic. Or uh, the other um, example I was thinking of in terms of that, 
the playing around with the panels. I know everybody hates this movie, but the Ang Lee version of the Hulk, um, he made a really consorted effort, I think editorially within the construct of how that film was assembled to create a moving series of almost like wipes and almost like optical wipes, although I think they were all digital, to create this kind of sense of panels moving side to side to kind of actually make it feel more like a comic book, you know, which I know there's all kinds of other problems with that picture, I think, for people too. But so I don't know. I mean, there's so many different ways you can go. You mentioned the original Christopher Reeve thing. Um, Just if I can talk about that stylistic for you for a second and not in terms of the actors. Mm -hmm. I think what was charming about that is you had this fish out of water thing about him being the pretending to be the bumbling guy, Mm -hmm. but also having to acquaint himself with the customs of a cynical city like we were when we saw that film as kids it was like we knew superman was like whatever but he was a bit uninformed as to the nuances of modern day life and he was a bit of a goody two-shoes so that was kind of enchantingly humorous and and engaging all at the same time this one is like dark and black and stuff and so i think again just to get on stylistically when we they shot that on location because back then you know mm-hmm. didn't visually effects create a whole city it was great you know you had the guy kind of walking down the streets and it's in the alley where he grabs the bullet and it's all well ironically you know, it's almost more the christopher nolan dark knight model where like christopher nolan is on location shooting in actual cities whether it's in chicago or wherever they you know i think they shot some of it maybe in la too and I think Superman, well, it's a more, the the Richard Donner Superman that you're talking about, it's a much more sort of vibrant color. And I think you, yep. it's so true. It's fish out of water with him as the bumbling reporter, but it's also fish out of water of him as the innocent, you know, Dudley Do-Right alien in the yeah. sort of drug-addled, cynical, late 70s New York City, in essence, right? Yeah. So, and then those great yeah. scenes with like the... Uh, lung cancer and he's like not yet totally. and you know he's like saying it straight and where is the audience like oh of course he's got extreme vision oh that's so good mm-hmm. you know what i mean like we we kind of in there for him whereas this one i feel like you know they shot i think they shot it in uh, i don't know it's like not chicago right i think they shot the first man of steel in chicago i think for here they actually went to michigan and so it was very much a set you know, mm-hmm. they very much weren't on the streets of a place like a Chicago or something. Um, well, it did often feel like, I think you said this earlier, it did often feel like from certainly in all the effect sequences, but oftentimes in some of the just, even if there is an exterior, it was never a bright sunny day. There were never any yeah. bright, you know, saturated colors. It was always overcast, cloudy, like kind of dark. And then when there was a key visual effects action sequence, it did feel like it was all shot on a stage. And you know, when you had um, Clark arguing with uh, what should or shouldn't be in the paper, and I almost felt like why is Superman even bothering to have the pretense of being a reporter? Like it seemed like everything was, like we, it just didn't make any sense that this version of Superman would still dick around with pretending to be a reporter because everything was not that world where he's trying to fit in and learn how we humans do things kind of thing. Um, It was much more like, uh, you know, well, I don't even know why you're bothering to go to work. There are all these other things pressing, you know. And yeah, see the the visual effects um, can work in isolation to the plot. I think the explosion at the court was a good... Aha moment. I, I like the idea of that, him being in the explosion and not, you know, hurt by it. Like that was really good. That really worked for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, that was one of the few sequences that we had like a realistic exterior. I mean, when he arrives yeah. outside and goes into the court, it was daylight, which made me think of it when you said it. Um, but that, do you know what I'm talking about? Like it doesn't feel like we're, we're in of a world and so it's more setty, hence less tied in. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I, I, I mean, just listening to, to you and Matt talk, I, I would agree with all of it. I think there's quite a few factors that, that work against this movie, and we've, we've talked about this before and, and um, other people have on the show as well. I think one of the problems with this with this movie, just from the outset, is that I don't think you particularly care for any of the characters, and I don't think it leads you down the road to know who to care for and how to care for them. Totally true. Um, and so you never attach yourself to one of them. I mean, obviously, it's going to be difficult. You've got two characters that we all love, and 
you would want to side with one of them, but it just felt like they never took you to that place. You never really cared less what would happen to them. And again, with Superman particularly, um, that that would be my preferred character for this movie because of the fact that you know he's indestructible and the fact that you know he can do whatever he wants to do you again when we've talked about this before there's no peril so you just you feel kind of detached and the fact that you have this more sound stage you feel i think it just is layer upon layer of of this almost artificial world that they're building up and i think that affects you as you watch the movie because it just it doesn't let you engage on a character level on a set level and you're just you know the scene you know the yep. scene, Matt Lena, where they're on top of the building, wanting to be rescued because it's in flood. Yeah. Okay, so that, that felt shot, like one of, yeah. But that shot on a car park, where the building is like four feet off the ground, and the rest of the building is digital. All the water's digital. Obviously, the sky is digital. Superman flying in, it's all digital. But again, it was so kind of stylized and so. Um, uh, as if we were seeing some, you know, God moment of, um, uh, and obviously I know why that was because, you know, saviour, but nevertheless, it just felt too much like perfect exposure, perfect everything. It felt like a set piece, right? Um, they shot it outside for almost no benefit because everything gets replaced around it. And as a consequence, I even thought it was a dream sequence. I was like, is that a dream? What is that? What am I looking at here? Hmm. And who has the time to accurately draw a logo on their house when you want to be saved? <laughs> so, you know, the flood's rising, son. I think you've got the S not quite right. Maybe a couple more inches to the left. Is that the right font? I don't know. You know. <laughs> um, well, Superman yeah. had to come save them because they used his emblem and if he hadn't, it would have been really bad PR. Yeah, because they got the emblem right. Yeah, it was just guilt really more than anything. And they did try yeah. a couple times, just in keeping with what you were saying, Matt, like I think they did try a couple times to, to help the audience sort of identify emotionally with Superman they sort of played they tried to pull on the sort of heartstrings with the the sort of tonal the piano you know uh, tonal music when they showed um, Superman uh, and, or Clark Kent like meeting with his or hallucinating a meeting with his dead father the Kevin Costner character or his interactions with his mother saying you know you don't have to do all these things for these people blah 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 and those were sort of hearkening back to the kind of more emotive moments the sort of hearth and home kind of moments in uh, Man of Steel but I, I felt like they just didn't it didn't work in this like it just never felt like it never felt true it never felt like it meant anything and it they felt really tacked on. And so yeah, you never had the chance to care much. Here's an interesting thing, picking up on that point then. Do you think, because of course they weren't playing Team Batman versus Team Superman, but of course that's the marketing focus of, of Civil War. I'm really interested to see when we go to see Civil War, whether or not you know, you'll have some people barracking for one team and one for the other and that they'll, they'll sort of use that as a device for you to care, like I want my team to kind of win. Whereas in this one, you're right, like I never felt like I had to pick sides. I never felt that, you know, I was Team Superman versus Team Batman. Well, I kept thinking it's so interesting that, yeah, they, they showed the trailer for Civil War, one of the trailers, the newest one, I guess, before this movie showed. And I kept thinking, oh, that's so interesting that, you know, we have the whole Marvel universe where they assembled each individual character for us in the standalone films, and then they brought them all together in the Avengers movies. And now they're they're fracturing in the Civil War, Captain America Civil War. But then the Justice League, if they go on to make the other films, which I assume they will continue to do, it's done well enough, <laughs> I think, to make that happen. And they've set it all up. Uh, they're doing the opposite thing here where they're starting with this sort of fractious kind of group and they're, they're bringing all these people together and unifying them. So it's kind of a, it's sort of the, um, the opposite approach in more ways than one, both narratively as well as stylistically as well. So we'll see. We'll see. Well, guys, it's been a good talking about it. I, I really, uh, I have to say, not my favourite film at the moment. Um, my favourite film at the moment, by the way, is Jungle Book. I got a chance to see that uh, in an early, early, early screening. In fact, it was the first time uh, John Favreau had shown it to an audience that he said wasn't paid to, in, to already like it. In other words, wasn't cast or crew or wasn't uh, publicists. And, uh, and I can tell you, when we come to do the VFX show, oh, that's going to be a good one. 
Um, but we're not allowed to talk about it just yet. But yes, that's uh, Jungle Book. Totally one of the films coming up uh, on the VFX show in it. the near future. Oh my god, yes. Okay. So good. <laughs> so good. I mean, just yeah, mouth. I mean, you know, it was the difference between this and uh, and uh, that film is just well. That's cool. Uh, I, mean, I mean, not to. I know you can't really talk about it, but I mean, that's a. It was a big. I think it was a big risk making a live action. Jungle Book, like I mean, the cartoon is such a well, sort of beloved classic. Uh, for Seriously, so give Rob Legato so. the Oscar now. Let's not waste the time. Let's save the money. <laughs> Don't have to have this. Just give Rob the Oscar. Thanks, mate. Awesome, love your work. Thank you so much. Please go off and make something else. <laughs> Don't even waste time uh, having to to go to any functions. Um, anyway, that's all coming up. As are a ton of other films uh, as we head into the US uh, summer. Matt, thank you so much, Matt Leonard, for being with us and uh, coming to us from Vancouver. What are you, can people follow you, your Twitter feed? What's the best way to people to uh, touch base with you? Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm on the Twitters just as uh, Matt D. Leonard. And I'm, as, as you said at the beginning, uh, over at NPC in Vancouver, uh, just um, heading up the training there, which is great fun. And, and Matt? For you? Oh, yeah. You can always uh, find me at um, my website, mattwallen.com, on Twitter's at Matt Wallen, and um, at Virginia Commonwealth University in lovely Richmond, Virginia. Yes. So, a ton of stuff coming up. Also, uh, I'd really like to see if uh, I could just put a quick plug in for the new FX Insider program. Uh, we've just launched on FX Guide. we sort of really keen to get your support, and uh, we did it last, I think. 2012, so we don't try and do this very often. We're not like um, public radio doing it every year, but we do uh, say if you enjoy the show, if you enjoy the site, um, if you could lend us some support, we'd really, really appreciate it. And uh, I, I joked we couldn't buy you a drink, but we can certainly give you the beer glasses to have the drink from. Um, but all of that and and more over at uh, FX. Oh my god! Guide. And, and your and new course, and your new app. That's so cool. And our, I bought our your app, app this morning. Yes. It's so it's so awesome. Did you? Well, I, I, okay, I'd have given you one, but okay, thanks. That's good. <laughs> uh, in addition to the Jungle Book, of course, we'll do uh, Civil War, Captain America coming up, the uh, X-Men Apocalypse, uh, Alice looking through the, uh, through the looking glass. I apologize. Um, and even um, I think we're going to go and, uh, and check out Independence Day Resurgence. I, I cross my fingers that I'm going to like that one, but there you go. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for being with us. I'm Mike Seymour. Of course, I'm Mike Seymour on Twitter, but you can find me over at fxguide.com. Thank you so much, guys, for being with us. And uh, Man of Steel. Okay, see you guys. Bye. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com.